the women of ill repute with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Hey, Maureen. Hi, Wendy. You know, I was thinking, you know how writers are always uh, being told to write about what you know, about what they know. Yeah, and I'm not sure about that advice. I mean, what about science fiction writers like, I don't know, um, H.G. Wells, um, fiction writers, C.S. Lewis, or... God forbid, Shakespeare. For yeah, all that. I, I think the advice is is misunderstood. I don't think time machines and talking lions and fairies uh, figured largely in their experience. But obviously, it's the emotions that these things elicit that probably did. Yeah, which brings us to our guest this week, who is Suzette Meyer. She won the Giller this year, and she writes about both. I mean, she writes a lot about being black, about being gay, about being an English professor. So she does write a lot about stuff that she knows, but she also, she makes stuff up <laughs> in a good way. Um, she has some amazing characters, like there's these two women, a white woman who, who uh, a white woman who becomes black, <laughs> about uh, a pair of elderly German women. I think she has some German blood. Um, but these two German women who go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. So it's kind of both. It's yeah, together. Yeah. Did they live? I didn't read the book. I I can't remember. I didn't read that book either. I read I read the Sleeping Porter book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's actually the current one. But uh, yeah, there's certainly... There, oh, wait, she also wrote a horror story about a woman who can hear her blood rushing through her veins. Ooh. Ooh, okay. Well, I got to read that one too. But but you're right. The latest book, the one that won the Giller, is uh, The Sleeping Car Porter. And it's about a gay black train porter who worked on a cross-country train. So cross-country, I guess... It was Montreal, I think, to Van- Vancouver back in, back in the 20s. So that's cross countries. Like, who cares about the Maritime? Montreal sports? to Vancouver. <laughs> the Atlantic yeah. region, as we were taught to say. <laughs> the Atlantic region. Yeah, back in the 20s. And, uh, and this porter really wants to be a dentist. Um, so the sleeping car porter took years and years of research, largely because, and, and quite seriously, black and queer stories were rarely told or certainly not recorded, not in mainstream media anyway. Yeah. So we want to talk to Suzette about where these characters come from and what they mean. Like, obviously, the, particularly in the sleeping car porter, uh, the character means a lot. So we want to, we want to talk to her about that. And also what it's like to win the Giller Prize and what happens after you win the Giller Prize. So many questions and here she is. So with no further ado, hello, Suzette Meyer. Hi, Suzette. Hello. Hello. So great to be here. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank I've, you. You've been hearing that for a while I sh- from the Giller. I also know that you're up for the, the Carol Shields Award. That's right. Yeah. Which is open to um, American and Canadian women and non-binary people. Yes, that's right. And that's going to be announced soon. So good luck with that. Thank you. (laughs) I'm looking in the background. There's something shiny. Is is that that the award? Oh, (laughs) no. The award's downstairs and it's see-through, so you wouldn't be able to see it. That's I think that's just like one of those good luck Chinese cats, actually. Oh, well, it obviously works. (laughs) Yeah, see-through. I I, I sort of thought it looked... I was looking at a picture of you holding the, the award... And it looks like a giant glass 
coffee pot. It was so heavy. It was so heavy. And I had, you know, and I'm trying to juggle a piece of paper and all kinds of things. And I'm like, can somebody help me? And nobody was going to help me. But nope, I guess that's nope. that's kind of the point, right? That's yeah. kind of the point. <laughs> you earned it. Yeah. You carry it around. <laughs> so let's start with that. What's it been like since then? I mean, it is it is one of the, it is the highest literary award you can win in this country and probably one of the biggest in the English speaking world. So, so how's that been? Oh, it's been busy. It's been busy. So I kind of went from zero to, I don't know, 160 in about 10 minutes because, you know, I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing, I think I published my first book in like 1995 and got a little bit of attention, you know, in Alberta mostly. And then and I'd just been doing my thing. And now with the Giller, it's suddenly ginormous. It's I've been doing all kinds of engagements that I've been going to festivals I've never heard of. I've been asked completely bizarre questions about, you know, so you wrote this book. Uh, because you wrote this book, what kind of tree would you be? You know, like basically questions like, like just kind of out there. <laughs> and so it's I'm just writing this I'm riding this wave while it's here because I know, you know, pretty much by the time the long list for the 2023 Giller is announced, I'll be, I'll be, you know, I'll be old news. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take advantage of it. Well, are, are you a tree? Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know what tree I am. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. It's not, a, it's not as if the material itself, particularly for the, the sleeping car porter, isn't interesting. You don't really have to go far afield. What I'm interested in is the amount of research. I mean, it took you 18 years, I think, to research this. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. but but you couldn't find anything. I mean, you knew this. Ha- you knew that 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 there that uh, that porters there were black porters almost universally. I think there were no records of their experiences. No, no. So so a lot of the you know, when people talk about writing fantasy, they talk about world building. So a lot of my research was the world building. So figuring out that historical period, 1929, you know, around Winnipeg-ish kind of prairie life, and also life on a train. So that was like world number one. And then world number two is figuring out these sleeping car porters, because that, as you say, they were completely peripheral figures. They weren't Nobody cared about them in that kind of official historical way. They were sort of the background of other more important people, in quotation marks, um, you know, the background of those stories. And so uh, that was kind of brutal. But luckily, you know, there have been many people behind the scenes who have been working hard to retrieve that history. And I was really lucky in around 2014 or so, I was in the Winnipeg Provincial Archives and somebody in the 80s had done a whole bunch of interviews with sleeping car porters. And so there was this series of interviews. But the problem with those interviews and what I encountered over and over again was that sleeping car porters didn't actually want to talk about the realities and the minutiae of the job because it was so, it was, it was a hard job. It was really terrible. There was lots of racism. There were all kinds of indignities. So they just didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about the good things. And then compounded with that was me trying to find a queer sleeping car porter or just a queer black man from the time. And of course there's nothing because, you know, queer people at the time, uh, they had to hide and some of them hid really, really well. And I, I'll never forget this time when I think I was in the archives in I think the Winnipeg archives once again, and I had discovered, you know, in the catalog that there was a series of interviews with men who would have been about 
you know, they were maybe 10 years older than my character, or 10 years younger, rather, than my character. So, so they would have been born like 1939. And there was a series of interviews with them. So, you know, I told the archivist, I said, I'd like to see this box of interviews, because they were hard copy. And so the archivist brought out the box. And I'm like, this is great, because I'm going to learn all about these queer guys, you know, circa 1940, 1930. And I opened up the box, and it was empty. And I said to the archivist, what's going on here? And the archivist said that the files were embargoed because, she, and she said, it could be because the men didn't want people to know about them, or it could be the families didn't want to know about them. So, you know, it's a whole history that is silent, except in criminal records and, you know, court records, and maybe the occasional, you know, every so often somebody will come across you know, a stash of photos or letters that somebody hid. But it's a lot of just kind of piecing together clues that maybe these two guys were together just because there's so many photos of them together with their arms around each other, but they could also just be friends. And, you know, black people in particular, they had all kinds of persecution to worry about, you know, forget about additionally being caught out for gross indecency. So, you know, it wasn't until I actually... I was reading an article by Stephen Maynard, who's a historian at... Queen's University, and he specializes in gay male culture at the turn of the 20th century in Ontario. And he just happened to have written a line in one of his articles about Edward L., a janitor who had been found, you know, um, committing gross indecency with a porter. And so I thought, okay, you know, if it's a porter, it's got to be a black man because 99.9% of them were. And so I emailed Stephen Maynard and I said, was this a black man? And he said, yes. And his name was Davis. And he was a 40 year old married guy, you know, an upstanding citizen. And Davis was uh, charged and he had the choice of either paying a $300 fine. I think it was $300 fine. And those guys only made like 60 bucks a, a month if they were lucky, $300 fine or six months in jail. And then he disappears from the records. You know, so it was, it was really, it was really rough. And then, and then there were those other, there was the other element of, you know, okay, so if you're a guy and you're cruising other guys in the park in the dark, are you racist? Like, are you choosy about your partners? And there is no way to find that information. And it wasn't until I was actually talking to George Chauncey, who's a historian, and I saw him at a talk and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go introduce myself afterwards. And I said, you know, do you have any sense of if there was, you know, racial intermingling in terms of gay men and their sexual liaisons? And he said, you know, there was a man in New York, I think it was New York, who would keep a diary of all the guys he slept with. And he would note every single thing about them. And there were like men of color in there as well. Yeah, we, it's funny, like we forget these days that it wasn't that long ago that people like in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s, there were people who were thrown in jail, black or white, but just just for being gay, because that act was seen as illegal. And then you add on top of that, that this porter is not just gay, he's black, and he's he gets demerits for uh, one of the things that you did so much research, but one of the things that really hit me was that he walks into a room and all of these women women are these white women are changing and it's like he's not even human like they're just changing they're they're like naked and it's like yeah well you're not human i mean it's not enough to get a demerit and have your life ruined and not to be able to determine your future or to be thrown in jail because you're black but you're not even a human being i just uh 
it, it must have been heart wrenching to to read all of this or to to think of all of this, write all of this. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. It was really hard. But I think you know, luckily, they were they had huge supports in their communities in terms of the women and the kids and the relatives. A lot of them also had like a, a tremendous sense of humor. I noticed, and. Uh, they were so ambitious, you know, so you have people like Oscar Peterson's dad, who was like my kids, you know, Oscar, and also his sister, Daisy Peterson, uh, who is a really talented pianist as well. You know, he's like, my kids are going to do better than I'm going to do. And then you had people like Rufus Rockhead, who is really fascinating to me. He was a porter who, you know, was smuggling booze while he was a porter. And with the money that he made from smuggling booze, he opened up a nightclub in Montreal, Rockheads Paradise. Wait, Rockheads. That's Rockheads. I remember that nightclub. Rockheads in Montreal. I remember. Oh, my gosh. Oh, really? Yes. That's Rockheads. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I used to live in Montreal. I used to live in Little Burgundy. And Rockheads was like, it was amazing. And I was like, I'm a thousand. So I was there when I was 20. And it doesn't exist anymore. I was too young to get in. <laughs> But yeah, Rockets was this amazing bar. It kind of went downhill, I'm sure, after he died. But uh, but yeah, so it's there. There are some happy stories, but it's so sad because I used to live in a neighborhood that's now Trey Groovy in Montreal, uh, Little Burgundy, which was an area where a lot of porters lived, a lot of maids, and a lot of and a lot of black people. And then they put the friggin' highway right through it, and they destroyed the neighborhood. So it's you know like it's not just like things get physically wiped out as well as the history gets wiped out. Except spies, we seem to know a lot about spies and celebrities and royals. <laughs> Well, but isn't that part of the problem, which brings us back to the research, is that we only have, like, it would have been easier to talk to these porters, but they're all dead now because we're, it's 100 years ago. And it's only in the last, I'd say, maybe 40 or 50 years, I'm even talking academically here, that, that oral history suddenly be, you, people realize how precious and how ephemeral it is. And if we don't get these stories down, we're never going to get them. Yeah, like I said, part of the issue was that or part of the issue is that sometimes people don't, people don't want to tell the whole truth. You know, there's, there's, they're still worried. They're still scared. There might be a reason not to give the whole story. You said that in your speech. I was quite touched by that. When you won the Giller, you, you said, I want to thank so-and-so and so-and-so the usual. And then, and then you said something to the effect of, and I want this to be for, for all queer people. And some of you are out and a lot of you aren't because it's too, da- it's still too dangerous. Still too dangerous. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there are parts of the world where I can't go and don't want to go because, you know, even though I live this beautiful out life in Canada, I would be, I don't know, raped, killed, whatever, you know, thrown in jail. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's and, and the book is, you know, set a long time ago, but it's only 100 years ago, you know, and, and a lot has changed. But we just have to look to the south to see that drag queens are once again being outlawed, which I think is just completely absurd. It's just ridiculous and the protests around here you know with drag story hours it's just it comes back peace does not keep itself didn't machiavelli or somebody say like that like say something like that peace does not keep itself that's true the women of ill repute I was going to say, Wendy, Wendy wants to ask you about, about the halls of academia, yeah. about which you write so well. And, and just before we started this interview, we were actually talking about the chair, which was a, um, uh, a series with Sandra Oh, who played a department head 
or would be department head. And you said you couldn't watch it because it was a documentary. I could not watch it. No, no, <laughs> it was too hard, especially because when it came out, I was a graduate program director. And so I was an associate head and uh, I guess an associate chair. And I, it was too real. I don't need to go, you know, watch a show like that to relax. And also they were making such terrible choices. Like, of course you shouldn't smoke up before you go to a department party. You know, like I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't, it was real. It was terrible. After. Well, yeah, exactly. 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 Or just, you know, just bite the head off the gummy bear. You don't have to have the whole gummy bear. Come on. Yeah, I was quite struck by it because it was positioned. I thought, oh, I got to read more about that. It's positioned as this satirical novel about what it's like in this imaginary university where the protagonist is or the antagonist teaches English. And I thought, bingo, because you teach English and you work at the University of Calgary and it's a satirical novel. And you talk about all of the, what are they called? The, the toxic student evaluation. So we both have kids who have been through the university or just emerging from the university process. And the rate my prof, it's like a big deal. Is, is that garbage or you're rolling your eyes? This is it's garbage. Rate my, well, rate my professor is, it's wicked. You know, it's sort of like, I don't know if there's any other, well, I guess Yelp. It's sort of Yelp for people, right? And so like, there's there have been studies that, you know, student evaluations of male professors are way different from student evaluations of female professors, even if they're teaching the same material in the same way. Like there's just bias baked in. And I made the mistake of reading my rate, the professor's evaluations. And I'm like, I don't need to know this. This job is hard enough without knowing I am the most boring professor on the planet or whatever. You know what I mean? So there's incredible kind of gender bias in those you know, evaluations, there's, I'm sure there's racial bias in there as well. You know, so I, I, I stopped reading my evaluations as soon as I was allowed to. Like when I was coming up for tenure, you had to, you had to read your, you had to read your evaluations and you had to report on them and talk about any idiosyncrasies and whatever crank students said. And then once I hit tenure, I'm like, I don't have to do this anymore because I feel terrible. The other thing too, is it's not like I got terrible evaluations, you know, and every so often I'll break and maybe read a set. But, you know, if you have whatever, 70 students and two of them don't like you, which are the ones you remember? You know, it's the ones where they don't like you and it just kind of keeps you up at night. It's re- it's really bad, you know. So-, so now do you write, I won the giller, screw off? <laughs> <laughs> I think that Those goes are, without saying the, at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Some students are like, the giller, what's that? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, really? It's kind of... English students who don't know, English students at a university in Canada don't know what the giller is? Fail. Well, I also I also teach business students kinesiology, engineering, you know, so all kind of medical. Still, you know, so it's not like I'm all, I've only got English majors. Still, goes Maureen. She's like, still, what they don't know the Giller. <laughs> no, they don't. I mean, my students were adorable. They were so sweet, and if they didn't know what the Giller was, they sure hid it. And I think they learned what the Giller was because I had to miss so many classes in order to do that between the pages book tour. They were adorable. They were really sweet. And and there was one student in particular who, you know, he was kind of a little, he was a little bit sassy, I have to say. 
and a little bit rude. And then when I won the gala, suddenly it was like, Dr. Meyer, can I speak to you, Dr. Meyer? Hello, Dr. Meyer, Dr. Meyer. I'm like, sure. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take, okay. So, well, well, well. But you know, it's interesting this winning the Giller or just just be, makes you a public figure and Wendy uh, and I have been public figures for a long time and it's part of the part of the gig is that a little bit of fame or success suddenly makes you the recipient of both positive and negative reviews. And and there are some I mean anybody on who speaks up on social media is starting to get a taste of that. You don't even have to be famous anymore. The the, the mob will turn on you uh, on a dime. And and it's and you're right. The only things that I remember, I, I'll get 98 letters saying or, or emails saying, you know, love your show, love your podcast, love your hair, love your teeth. But the two that I'll remember will be your teeth are too big. And, <laughs> yeah, ex- and you're, exactly. you're boring. I think we're hardwired somehow <laughs> to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And why? And those are the ones that are true. Exactly. The rest that don't, the rest don't so, matter. It's, well, it all comes down is. to teeth, doesn't it, Maureen? Maureen just wrote something about some guy who commented she, on a picture of her and, and her, and she's like, screw off with my teeth. Like, I don't know why. No, he <laughs> said, could your teeth be any bigger? And I said, could your dick be any bigger? And, and it's funny because I should have written that in conjunction with our interview with Suzette because the uh, porter is pre is wants to be a dentist and so teeth have figured rather largely. But then then I wrote all this is on Substack, Substack I wrote wrote a whole history about my teeth because I've been through all this sort of stuff. And I started to, I happened to see my dentist last week and he wanted he said send this to me I want to read <laughs> and all of a sudden teeth be I mean you must have you must have learned an awful lot about teeth in your research. I did. I learned about 1917 dentistry. I also, I also have gap teeth and I have like, you know, this kind of symmetrical crookedness that there have been dentists who said, do you like your teeth like that? And I'm like, yes, I like my teeth like this. (laughs) So, you know, I I mean, yeah. So, so uh, the main character Baxter wants to be a dentist. And so as part of the research for that, I just found some, textbooks from 1917, 1920 on Hathi Trust. And they were, it was so interesting. It's so interesting because so many, you know, so many elements are the same. Like the teeth are named the same as they are now. As far as I can tell, I'm not a dentist, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in this. But then, but then. Write <laughs> my prof, we're writing this down. <laughs> yeah, but then for sometimes there was, uh, you know, they'd have advice about how to deal with, you know, cavities in kids and they were literally there was literally advice like have one person hold the child between their knees the other person comes in with the pliers and pulls the you know what I mean so hold the kid while you pull the teeth out (laughs) like things have changed for the better I have to say (laughs) you just you just reminded me as a child when I was a child the the slamming of the time is straight around the tooth to remove the tooth around a door that just came back to me now. You, we did do that. Now? What do people do now Holy. with little kids when they're... They just wait for them to fall, fall out. It's better to use the string. Just, oh, it's okay. just you can't because it sounds pretty brutal. <laughs> they wiggle them now. They'll, they wiggle them until they come out. <laughs> yeah. Slamming a door. What was that yeah. about? I remember that. Dis- what, what was the that? point of that? That makes no sense in hindsight. But it was what you did. And that wasn't that long ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't want this to be a spoiler alert. But you, the 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 book has a nice ending, shall we say, as related somehow to dentistry school somehow. But but you say that it's really important to have 
a happy ending. So why? Why why do you why do you always have to have a happy ending? I need to have a happy ending because so many stories about black people, so many stories about or BIPOC people, so many stories about queer people end tragically. And this was really driven home to me when, you know, uh, there was a student, a BIPOC student who had read this book. And she said that as she was reading the book, she was just getting more and more stressed out and knew it was going to end poorly, knew it was going to end poorly. And then at the end, it's a happy ending. And she was shocked. And I think it's because there are too many stories that, you know, I, I, I are leftovers of that really, you know, of that time when if you're a queer person, you will be punished for your joy. You will be punished for your sexuality. Like that's a whole genre of, you know, dead queers or whatever it's called, kill your gays, I think, you know, where you you kill them off or they end up in, um, you know, in a loveless situation. So if you have two women, well, one runs off with a man and the other one's left devastated or one runs off with a man and the other one dies. And so I was like, okay, I am not writing an unhappy ending. You know, I'm going to be realistic about it, but I'm not doing that to my gay guy. And then as far as black people go, there's so much, uh, I find that the stories that seem to get the most attention usually are the ones that have to do with slavery and tragedy and pain and black suffering. And I just, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm tired of that. And, and I was talking to, I was a host um, at the University of Calgary and Bernadine Evaristo was the writer in residence there. And she started talking about black joy. And I'm like, what is it? What are you talking about? What is this black joy? And I, there's a video online that went viral and it's just of black people laughing and it was, it's been seen like millions and millions of times because it's just so, you know, when you see black people in, um, you know, in the mainstream news, it's like this person is dead or they've been arrested or they're suffering from starvation or whatever. It's so rare to see. Or they're see. very angry. Or they're extremely angry. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I needed something different. I needed to read a book that wasn't, for me, that wasn't out there where you could have or that was hadn't been published yet, which is having a truly happy ending for a black queer person. Can I ask, this so, might be a rude question, but uh, you came out in the early 90s, I think, so. Yeah, yeah. So what, and then you talk about being the only black woman in a lesbian bar. Like, what was that? Can you tell me what it was, what was it like? Like the first time you, you were out and you went to a lesbian bar and you're. And you're you, alone. You're, you're yeah, singular. You're, must have been like, well, yeah, but it would have been exciting and terrifying, I would think. It, it was super terrifying. And it was also beyond thrilling. It was shocking and gorgeous to see women dancing with each other. I had never seen anything like it. And at that point, you know, I wasn't even thinking about I'm the only black person in the bar. It was like, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by all these women and they like each other and I like women, too. And what am I going to do? You know, and it wasn't until later on, actually, when I was I was in a bar and there was another black woman. Her name was Phoenix. And I had never seen a black queer woman in person before. And it was it was this moment of you know, who's that? And how interesting is she? And, you know, it was a very weird kind of, you know, double E, W E B Du Bois or Du Bois talks about double consciousness where you're, you're inside your body, but you're outside your body. Um, so, and growing up in Calgary in the, you know, up until the nineties, early two thousands, it was like a, it's a predominantly white place. And so I'm, I'm, I was rare. I'm not so rare anymore, but it was definitely rare there. And, 
uh, and for a long time, I, because, you know, because I wasn't necessarily accepted within my family yet, um, as a, as a queer person, I identified more as queer than I did as black within that lesbian scene, you know, because it's like, okay, here I am with, with my people where I feel comfortable. Whereas if I were to go to an event that had all black people, I wouldn't have felt as accepted because of homophobia. Oh, well, it's all good now. Yeah. Everything's great. <laughs> everything's great. Everything's perfect. You solved everything. Everything's all great. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. That dovetails nicely into to what I wanted to ask you about. So now you're positioned in certain circles, I guess, as a, as a, uh, a queer writer of color that tells queer stories, stories of queer people of color. Is, is that, I mean, that's a, that's great in some ways, but it might be cutting you off from a wider audience. I think the Giller will help with that. But I wonder, you know, it's like she was one of the, she's one of the great female novelists. How about just one of the great novelists, you know? And and I wonder if this is going to if this is helping you or hindering you to be known as a specific kind of writer. I just I think I just don't care. You know, I've been writing my little books for years and they're about all kinds of things. And my second book was about three German women who go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Three, you know, three, three. We thought there were two. two. There were three, three. Well, two, (laughs) two sisters and and their friend. Well, the lover, lover of one of them anyway. And so I, I, I have, I've just never really, do you swear on this podcast? Oh fuck okay, yes. Okay, okay, all right. I've never really <laughs> I've never really given a shit about um what people think of what I do and I'm just gonna do what I do and I, I'm not gonna I I know that I'm never you know, I've got the Giller Prize, I've got all that money, that's great, but it's gonna run out <laughs> you know, I'm gonna yeah. I, my family lives long into our nineties and so it's gonna it's gonna run out and so I have to keep my day job and the freedom that comes with the day job is that you can write whatever you want and I can sell, you know, 200 copies and I'm fine with that so if people want to slot me that way that's go for it but you know I it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to me and I you know I'm pretty I've, I've been invited to be part of a pride event in Stratford or something and I'm like bring it I love it it's amazing so has it changed your life it has for now I mean it's more radical to be recognized in Ontario frankly than anything else <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, that's what's changed the most. It has changed my life in that, uh, just momentarily people seem to be taking me a bit more seriously as a writer. Whereas before I kind of had to, I kind of had to fight to be recognized, you know? Um, and then I had to fight really hard to not care if I wasn't recognized really because I, I needed that freedom. I need the freedom to do what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, what I, what I know is going to happen is that I've won this award. I'll write my next book, and that book will be a comparative failure, no matter what. Because I'm not going to win the Giller again. You know what I mean? So, but it's, that's what it is. It's okay. It's all right. Has anyone won the Giller twice? I think Essie Dugan. Essie Dugan yes, won it twice. Yes. And I think, was it M.G. Vasanji or somebody? I think he wrote it. I think he won it twice. Yeah, um, I mean, you'll certainly be nominated now. That's a club. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt it. It is a big leap because you go from being a uh, 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 critically acclaimed, which you were, a uh, writer known in certain circles, to this kind of mass 
recognition, and then you know inevitably that you that it doesn't last. It's more fleeting than almost any other kind of fame. You get you get a yeah. year, yeah, yeah. At best. you get a year, and then you get back to business. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I haven't been doing any writing at all because there's just no time. So I, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to having that time back. Although I, I just want to say I am absolutely, I'm deliriously happy this has happened. And it's remarkable. But there's, but there's no time. There's no time to write. There's no time but to write. But you got $100,000. I mean, that's not bad. I got $100,000. And the royalties are pretty sweet, too, with the books that have sold as a result of the award. Yeah. That's pretty well, awesome. We got yeah. to read about the German sisters <laughs> yeah, in the barrel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we love talking to you. So congratulations. It's uh, it's so good. And uh, I guess you. there's no title yet for the book that hasn't been written. But uh, no. Well, no. Can you tell us? Are you thinking? What do you? I mean, you're, you've got such a rich and 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 exotic, quirky, herb. I wonder what you're going to write about next. All I know is I'm going to write about a woman. That's it. I've got no yeah. ideas. I was going to write a haunted house book. Um, and I started working on that and wrote a short story and, and I, I somehow just fell out of my system. I'm not interested anymore. So I'm going to have a female protagonist. That's all I know. All right. Well, that's enough. <laughs> we'll have you back. We'll have you back to talk about the woman because we're really into uh, women of ill repute. So yeah. just make sure she's of ill repute, whatever that means. Well, we're, we're open to anybody of ill repute, <laughs> honestly. So I've heard. So I've heard. <laughs> Suzette Meyer, it's a real pleasure to meet you and to talk with you and good luck with everything. Yeah, yeah, lovely to Thank meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You gotta have a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Which means something completely, he means something completely <laughs> different now. Um, wow, well, there's that's our first Giller Prize winner, I think. Yeah, I read her book and I don't read a lot of fiction and it's real fiction. Like it, it's based on a real person. Baxter is a, a gay, black, sleeping uh, car porter. Uh, but there was a Baxter in her family who probably wasn't queer, although who knows, because it was illegal and top secret and all the histories were hidden, which is why she wanted to write the book. Um, but it's... Uh, it's amazing because there's so, we didn't even get into it, but I was fascinated by the details of like five bucks for a two week rental, yeah. like the money and, and the, the list of what you could get a demerit point for, yeah. for being a sleeping car porter. It was like, it was unbelievable. The rules that these people lived under. I, I'm with you on that. I love the minutia of what she calls world building. Uh, and I think almost any novelist would not just necessarily science fiction or fantasy writers have to create a world. And I love, and the details are what make it come alive. And, uh, yeah, it's, and I, I mean, I love trains, although I have to say after reading that one, I'm not in any hurry to get on a train. I think they might've changed in a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> it was about what trains were like a hundred years ago. The part that, well, you know, that I was sort of fixated on her other book, the, that was sort of a knockoff, a satirical knockoff on university life because she's a prof at the University of Calgary and about rate your prof. And it's because my daughter uh, having to pick courses, as I'm sure your sons did uh, at university, she would go on rate your prof. And I'd be it like, reads. is this really yeah, any yeah. different than any other uh, social media listing? And and she says, yeah, it's like Yelp, only it's it's biased against women. It's so. Yelp for, for teachers. And, and not only that, people are afraid if you criticize a prof, that's why profs will think twice about giving you a low mark. And the whole thing is 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 dangerously biased, and it's uh, 
it's I don't I don't think it's it's like rate your doctor, right? I mean, if you don't like your doctor's bedside matter and you say so, but they that he or she might be a really good doctor. We got to start rating yeah. people. That's my takeaway. Yeah. Well, th- this is a great podcast. I would give two thumbs up for this. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll check you out in the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.